Uh, my name is Wyeth Goodenough. I'm Vice President of Strategic Partnerships at Salesforce. Uh, we have a great session for you here today, uh, how modern dev teams build on uh, Salesforce, Heroku, and AWS. Um, have some very special guests today. Janine Banks from Amazon is joining us. I work with Janine a lot. She's fantastic, and she and her team are great to work with. We also have uh, Margaret Francis, SVP um, of Product and GM of Salesforce Heroku. It is also her birthday today. I was going to sing happy birthday into the mic, but that means everyone would probably leave given my cold and my bad singing voice. So not going to do that, um, but please wish her a happy birthday afterwards, and we'll be sure to go celebrate afterwards with a few beverages. Um, Great session here today. Um, for those of you who have um, been to Salesforce um, presentations before, you've seen this slide. We are going to make some forward-looking statements today. Please base your buying decisions on what is in the product today um, and not what you see in the presentation. All right, Salesforce and Amazon. So today, um, we have a strategic partnership. and I'm going to walk you through a little bit about our partnership, some of the things we're doing today, and then we're going to turn it over to Janine to talk about how we're going to enable that. And then we're going to get into kind of the app dev side um, um, with uh, Margaret after that. But um, starting out with, with Salesforce and Amazon, we formed our strategic partnership in December 2016, um, really because our customers are asking for it. They're asking us to do more with our platforms. Our platforms are very complimentary. Um, but before we get into that, um, Amazon is just a critical infrastructure provider for us. You, most people don't know this, but if you're running Salesforce um, in Canada and Australia, you're using our infrastructure behind the scenes. Um, we are going to continue to lean in to that, the public cloud and use more and more Amazon, but they are a critical, critical provider for us and allow us to do so many things in the world of GDPR and data localization and, and um, kind of all the global expansion we're looking to do. So very excited about our partnership with Amazon on that front. Also, Amazon uses Salesforce really wall-to-wall uses our products wall to wall. So we help enable the growth there and it's been, you know, we feel honored to be a part of that. Um, they use, for the most part, the majority of our products from marketing to sales to service. Obviously an incredible company growing at an incredible rate and really innovating. So we're, we're excited to, to help support that. So I'm going to get into now a little bit about the partnership and talk about some of the things we have available today. And then I'll turn it over to Janine who will talk about some of the announcements we made at Dreamforce and then how we're going to enable that. So first of all, in the context, I'm going to kind of walk through this wheel. In the contact center space, I don't know how many of you know um, the contact center, kind of call center, service center space, but it's going through a big transformation right now. There are products that are web-based, um, cloud-based CTI products, and Amazon has one called Amazon Connect. Um, it has been driving their retail business for many years at tremendous scale. Um, this space has been predominantly dominated by kind of the bigger on-prem solutions like Avaya, Genesis, Cisco, et cetera. Now everyone's scrambling to build a cloud-based CTI product. Amazon Connect is a phenomenal product. We think it's going to do very well in the space, but it needs our service cloud in order to be kind of the UI and engagement layer for the end user. So you can actually go out today, we've connected the two. You can go out today to our app exchange and you can download and install the connector and connect service cloud and Amazon Connect and be up and running with a consumption-based model in literally a matter of hours. It's pretty phenomenal. So very exciting product. Our, the GM of Connect and our head of Service Cloud are working very closely together on this. You're going to see us do more and more together with Amazon Connect um, and Service Cloud in the contact center space. As I you know, talk about our products being very complementary, kind of the next side as you kind of move around the wheel, the next piece is analytics and insights. So um, obviously Amazon has an amazing product in Redshift. Um, the way to 
render those insights and, and the engagement layer is, is, is Salesforce. And so you can connect Redshift and Einstein Analytics um, directly from within inside Salesforce and just go turn on that integration and be up and running rapidly. So this is another connector and very complementary um, set of products between our two organizations. The next one as we kind of move around is something that I feel is, is truly transformational in the space. Um, I used to run our customer success organization for the western part of the US. And what I found, what we found, is that for the most part, end users do not love entering data into business applications. They just don't find it that fun. And I think there are ways that we can change that via AI and via voice. So we launched Einstein Analytics, or sorry, Einstein Voice at Dreamforce this year. And it's a platform that you can now plug in um, Alexa for Business and Lex and other kind of voice-based and AI-based um, tools into. So we have customers now just doing amazing things on the platform with Alexa for Business. And use cases that we tried to come up with a few use cases that we were going to build kind of some skills that we just build and have available. And as we started thinking about them and talking to customers, um, customers were starting to do things that we didn't even, you know, couldn't even imagine. So very cool and exciting. I think a way, as you think about app dev and think about engaging with software moving forward, I really believe that the more we can reduce friction and make it easier and kind of bring out those insights is going to be really helpful for our end users. Um, so I'm going to actually turn it over now to Janine Banks from, from AWS. She's going to kind of walk you through this second half of the wheel and talk about application deployment, some of the new announcements that we made at Dreamforce. Thank you, Wyeth. Hi, everybody. I uh, hope many of you had a chance to see the keynote this morning from AWS CEO Andy Jassy, and he talked about two types of builders. One, where you want to have the lowest level access to all the tools and services in AWS or whatever developer platform you're using in order to assemble and integrate applications and build new customer experiences. And then there's also a second kind of builder he talked about and how within AWS has been uh, some time that we've learned from our customers and from many of you that we need to give more support and build capabilities both internally and together with partners like Salesforce to provide those second kinds of builders those who look for more configuration, you want more prescriptive guidance on putting things together, making it easier to get to an outcome uh, rather than spending too much time uh, doing things from scratch or reinventing the wheel if other customers and other builders have figured out a great way to, to solve the challenge. So we're certainly focused on all those builders out there and all of you helping you with application development, integrating our platforms together, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So the next topic is easy application deployment. And what's interesting there is um, AWS has been providing services for more than a decade to help builders develop modern digital applications. And so we're continuing to make those kinds of investments so that you can make applications that are leveraging blockchain, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, big data, analytics, and the list goes on. And so Margaret will talk more about how Salesforce Heroku and leveraging AWS is enabling you to develop modern applications and very easy, very fast. So I'll focus more on the next two points. One is bi-directional data. So we spent time, we said, okay, how do we make it easier for our customers to use AWS 
and Salesforce together. And we said, let's go out and talk to them and find out what they think are the biggest pain points they have and what are the opportunities to make things simpler, easier, and maximizing the security between our platforms. And one of the big areas had to do with events. And as organizations, and likely many of your organizations, are looking at how can we do things more and more near real time and be event-driven, reacting to events, not just at system level, but at the business level, so that you can respond to a lead that's converted to an opportunity, or you're responding to cases that escalate from level one to level two support. Whatever it might be, being able to respond to those events, our customers said, is critical. And not just responding, but how can I listen to an event that's happening in Salesforce, whether it's Sales Cloud or Service Cloud, any of the Salesforce applications, and then be able to take immediate action on that event in AWS, allowing S3 to respond, Redshift to respond, EC2, any of the services to be able to act on those events. And, but not only one direction, the other direction is equally important. How can I then, once some processing has been done in AWS or any other event is triggered, take an action on that event back in Salesforce, and enabling bi-directional sharing of these events and sharing of data in a secure way. So that gets me to the next topic, where we're not only looking to integrate our products more tightly to enable this seamless flow of events and data, but looking at things at a lower level as well. And by that, I mean the network boundary between our products. So if you think about it, um, a, uh, Salesforce has data centers, AWS has data centers, and obviously security is critical for all of us and what we're doing in the cloud. And so we see research recently, uh, Salesforce completed their state of the connected customer study, which uh, they've done each year for a number of years now, and some great insights just showing, yes, security remains a very, very top priority. And so when we heard that feedback from our customers as well, we said, what does that mean? How do we break that down? And we found that, yes, security has multiple levels, but in particular, an opportunity that seemed like a clear place for us to innovate together in collaboration, AWS and Salesforce, is around the network that our clouds have and how to make it easier for you to share data, share those events across those network boundaries so that it's not cumbersome, it's not time consuming, and you're not exposed to risk because you're transferring data over the public internet. Also as a builder, it's sometimes frustrating and maybe often frustrating depending on your organization and its policies to have to request IT or security to conduct an audit, an assessment, go through a bunch of process to get approval to have external services brought into your network. And so we don't want you and your colleagues to have to go through that pain and do that undifferentiated heavy lifting. Together, we're working on enabling this trusted network boundary between Salesforce and AWS so that you don't have to think about it. It just works. It's seamless, your data's not flowing, over the public internet, and you're able to have an experience that gives you fast time to market. And enabling technology to make that possible that we're integrating is something called AWS PrivateLink. 
We launched PrivateLink a year ago at reInvent. And since then, we have hundreds of partners, software partners, SaaS providers, who have integrated with PrivateLink to enable their services to be accessible within your virtual private cloud using your own internal private IP space. What does it mean? Well, it means that you can tap into these external services, request access to them, and the service provider or external to your organization can approve or reject that request. Assuming it's approved, it's a much simpler operating model to be able to onboard external services. And the service provider remains in control, and you can have that seamless interaction all with private connectivity using the AWS network backbone. So in context to our integration between AWS and Salesforce, we're taking advantage of PrivateLink to bring that capability together in a whole new way and in a seamless way with all the Salesforce applications that you use today. And so this gives you a picture of how that works. What you would see here is on the left, imagine you have Salesforce data centers located uh, in different regions around the world. And then we're using AWS Direct Connect to connect those data centers up to the region where that data center is located, the nearest proximity, and integrating that to the AWS cloud. Once you have that, within a VPC, you're able to bring that service in to the AWS cloud and then expose that service over a network load balancer so that other VPCs have the option to request access to your service and access that service. So imagine it's your organization on the right, which has this VPC, gave you access to resources in that area, and now you'll be able to leverage Salesforce directly from that network boundary. It feels like one network, a seamless experience, private connectivity. There are also a couple of other important benefits. One, because the data is flowing all on the AWS network, you can have a greater chance of lower latency in how that data flows. Now, there are multiple factors involved that contribute to the specific latency that you'll see, but certainly it's gonna be improved over having data travel over the public internet and having the, the noise and the uh, jitter that happens there. The second important benefit is simplicity. By that I mean the network architecture that you have and that your network team has is simplified. They don't have to put as much infrastructure in, they have to spend much time maintaining and troubleshooting that. And when you need to get access to services within your environment, you don't have to spend a lot of time requesting access to those services and going through lengthy procedures to get it. Now your time mark is improved with this benefit. So I'm really excited about the integration that we're driving between our products. These are just some examples. Uh, as Wyeth talked about, our partnership is really strategic to both of our organizations. We're already discussing numerous other ways to bring things closer together and making it easier for you to leverage them to build new customer experiences. So now I'll pass it to Margaret to talk about Salesforce Heroku and easy application development. Thank you. Thanks, Janine. Okay, so how many of you have already used Heroku? You're already Heroku users. Right, awesome. Okay, and how many of you are already fangirls and fanboys of Heroku? 
Okay, those two numbers should be a little bit closer together. So I guess the purpose of this talk is actually for me to help all of you understand the value that our customers have when they use Heroku and AWS together and the real benefits they get in doing application development on Heroku rather than on AWS straight up. Now, um, for those of you who aren't as familiar with Heroku, Heroku is an application development and deployment platform. You can basically write code in any open source language and you can deploy it to whatever private space uh, environment you want to. We run on top of tier one AWS data centers. We run in Germany, US East, US West, uh, London, uh, Dublin. We have pretty good uh, geographic coverage um, across the globe. And for those developers who really want to focus on writing application code, and not as much on the DevOps aspect of what they are doing, Heroku has really been an invaluable accelerant to innovation and application development for about a decade. Um, I guess it was about eight years ago that Salesforce uh, purchased Heroku. I've only been with Heroku five, six years now, so I'm like a newbie. Um, and you know, it's always had a really great reputation, I would say, in the grassroots developer community. Like if I'm doing a project solo and I just really need to bootstrap a website, I can do that by myself with my credit card for a few dollars a month on Heroku. And what's happened over the time that I've been at Heroku is that the value proposition has really changed from being that of a small development team, maybe a lone developer, to teams of teams, to teams of developers that are working at Fortune 500 companies, to teams of builders. I really like Jassy's word here, um, builders to talk about all of the people that it really takes to build a modern application at a company like State Farm, or like Align Technology, or even Caesars. Um, Caesars is a pretty actually interesting example. Uh, they're a lot like Amazon in that they use a lot of Salesforce applications. They use Sales Cloud, and they use Service Cloud, and they use Marketing Cloud. But when you walk into their casino here on the Strip, and their little loyalty application tells you like you know where the high roller machines are and ask you if you want to make a dinner reservation or get show tickets, that application is written in Node and it is running on Heroku. Um, and it is accessing information about your particular individual consumer profile that has been gleaned from all of those Salesforce clouds that everybody else has been interacting with. So if you've had service cloud, uh, service interactions, if you've ever been sold to um, via service cloud, that kind of thing. And that's a very common pattern. Heroku today is really the home for customer-centered digital experiences on the internet. And it's because so many of the developers that work in this space care more about producing those experiences than they really want to get kind of, I would say, into the weeds on the DevOps side of things. So um, let me uh, give you a couple of kind of key concepts for thinking about Heroku for those of you who are or are not as familiar with it. We have a thing that is called the app or the application inside of Heroku. That's really the code that you have written and you have deployed on the platform. And you can add on to that application various services, messaging, uh, logging, image transformation, anything like that. Those services are not wholly um, owned and operated by Heroku. We actually work with probably half the people on the show floor upstairs. Could be InstaCluster, could be SendGrid, could be, uh, oh, I don't know, MongoDB, whoever else is up there right now. They all have add-ons in our store. And so with a simple click, you can tack one of those add-on services onto your application and access some kind of functionality you, you didn't already have. Um, we also produce a number of data services, things that you would consider fairly classic, like Postgres, you know, simple relational data service, or something that's a little bit more um, exotic, like Kafka. We've had a Kafka, managed Kafka service in production for a couple of years that's been very popular for those who are more familiar with working with invented architectures. And 
I would say the, the big value that people get is really using it all in this atmosphere of team development, team collaboration, and workflow that spans across teams. And I'm going to show you an example of that in Toyota a little bit later in this presentation. So what do we at Heroku use of Amazon? Well, we use a lot. Um, in terms of being a customer of AWS, this is, uh, I actually think, an incomplete listing of all of the AWS services that we use in production to run Heroku. Um, we actually build as much of our platform as we can on Heroku. I would say the vast majority of our services uh, rely completely on Heroku. It's like turtles all the way down. Um, and yet at the same time, sometimes you can't build it all with the primitives that we offer inside the Heroku platform. And so here's a sampling of all of the things that we use and consider ourselves fairly high scale and expert in using that Amazon offers. How many of you use, use, you use like five or more of these today? Yeah, it's a lot. Um, I think one of the key benefits that developers generally get from using Heroku is that, Her I mean, Amazon's catalog is so big, it's so deep, it is so powerful. It is uh, not that every application that you built is going to need all of these services. So when we provide a really simple prescriptive recipe for how to build an application on Heroku, it actually gets rid of a lot of the complexity you might otherwise have in sorting through all the things you might need to, to purchase um, and configure. So we love our AWS. We're one of their biggest fans. We're a very big customer of AWS. When you buy um, Heroku, when you run a service on top of us, you are underneath the covers using AWS. And yet, at the same time, we find that the most efficient developer experience for ourselves and for our customers happens when we use Heroku. So most of the majority of this presentation is going to be about how we ourselves build applications on top of Heroku and how our customers do as well and why they do it. Because there are a lot of valid ways to get things done in the world today. And not every application lends itself either to you know, Heroku or to um, AWS um, RAW. So it's really a decision all of you have to make depending on the use case. OK, so I've been advised that the most interesting parts of these um, presentations are usually in the Q&A at the end. Um, but I also recognize that this is a mid-afternoon session and that Janine already said the incredibly like dirty words of, uh, well, what was it? Audit, approval, and um, I forget, assessment. Like, the, you know, the, the three horsemen of you know, the developer apocalypse right there. Like, everyone hates those words. They are, they're terrible um, to, to, to experience. Um, anyone who's already been through SOC and HIPAA and PCI and everything else that the rest of us has been through appreciates the fact that um, with Heroku, you can actually buy shielded, what we call shielded spaces and shielded services. Um, we'll sign the BAA with you. Um, and you will actually be able to get all of those certifications for applications that run on Heroku with like literally a click. This is huge. If you're in HLS, if you're in financial services, or if you're just in a really strict regulatory environment, and you know that you need all of the compliances in the entire universe, you buy all of the usual Heroku things and you buy them shielded. You buy shielded uh, you know, Postgres and you buy shielded dinos and you use them in a shielded space. And then when the auditor comes to visit you, you're like, this is not my problem. Here is the BAA. It has been signed. I will show you a copy. Please go away. It's wonderful. This is a really big deal. Um, it is not available for all of our services, and it is not available for all of our, our environments, and it does cost more. Um, so that's why it's kind of sitting off to one side in this diagram. 
the base elements that you have to work with, whether they are shielded or not on Heroku, are your code. Your code that you connect um, you know, your GitHub or whatever to, to Heroku, whatever code you write there, you deploy to Heroku, it's drop dead simple, git push Heroku master. That's available all the places and all the ways. And with it, you get the admin experience. So uh, I'm an executive now, and I'm only qualified to stand on stage and talk about things that happen in presentations. My role on almost all of the Heroku apps um, at Salesforce is now as an administrator. That means that I don't actually get to like, look at data in production, and I don't get to deploy anymore because I'm too far from being useful to be trusted with that kind of um, that power. But that admin experience, where I can see what all of the teams built and all of the services they use and who needs compliance stuff and who doesn't is enormous. Um, it's really very important. So likewise, the developer experience. Um, the experience that we provide to all of the everyday individual contributors and engineers and architects that are building applications for your business is pretty critical. And I'm going to show you a little bit of the product and what it looks like in, um, with pipelines and continuous deployment and continuous integration. And last but not least, OpEx. How do you know that your application is healthy, that it's serving your Black Friday traffic, your Cyber Monday traffic? This is actually where a lot of the pain comes in after the thing is built when you're owning and operating it. We understand this fairly well. We um, have a lot of retailers and media sites on our properties, and um, they are very bursty. And they have a lot of really unusual events happen to them. And so we have a lot of tools and monitoring that really help developers respond quickly when there's a change in the load on their applications that's quite unexpected. So I talked a little bit about Heroku Data, our data services, and Heroku Elements, which um, is a name for all of those add-on partners that have a booth up in the show floor that might want to sell you something or give you swag after this session. Um, all of that sits on top of the Heroku platform. So you can interact with Heroku via the GUI, via the CLI, via the API. It really depends what your needs are for interacting with the Heroku platform. And of course, we run it all on AWS. So, how many of you um, are using Docker? Yeah, are using it in production? Slightly fewer hands. Um, so in the beginning, uh, before there was a thing called Docker, and in the early days of containers, there was a thing called a dyno, which is essentially like an LXC container that runs in the sky. And the original insight of Heroku was really that you could deploy as many of these containers as you wanted in a stateless manner. You could just scale up all of your workloads. And if it did it on public cloud infrastructure, it was like magic. That insight has really held true for all the time that I have been in Heroku and have been in this industry. And when you add it with the data services and you add the add-on services to it, you can really run a web app that can handle massive loads um, with relatively low developer um, uh, investment. Um, and the DevOps and management side of things. And that's been the huge value that many different development teams have received from using Heroku over the years. Um, what it's not going to do for you, and it's good, again, to have you know, kind of the cost and benefit of all these, these things, is enable you to squeeze every last penny um, out of your total cost of ownership. If that is super important to you, then please reference you know, Jassy's keynote from this morning, because there were a number of amazing announcements made around how AWS will help you like squeeze your bill down even further. The developers that we focus on serving are those that are more concerned with how quickly they can get new applications to market and innovate on behalf of the business. And I'm going to show you what one of those applications looks like in a, in a minute. Um, but first, a word about the developer experience. Um, how many of you are using GitHub right now as your version control system? Yeah, it's pretty, pretty standard. Um, 
Every time you commit new code, you create that unique hash of your commit. If you are using a feature we call Heroku Pipelines, you actually will get an ephemeral copy of that little, that application, that unique hash, um, spun up with all of its data services and all of its add-ons, and you can do whatever testing, integration, testing, um, you know, show it to your executives for approval, show it to the creatives, whatever it might be. You can get this complete ephemeral copy of your application spun up in seconds. You can use it for as long as you want and destroy it when you are done and you will pay only for the resources that you use. This notion of ephemeralization has been critical um, to, to really accelerating development for the teams that, that use Heroku and it's probably one of our most popular features. And when you're ready with that particular um, you know, branch, you want to merge it in, you want to promote to staging, you want to promote to production, you can do that with like a button. It's so simple. And you can decide that you want to promote to all of your production environments or just Germany or you know, just the UK, whatever it is that um, uh, fits your particular deployment pattern. These are the kinds of productivity tools that you get when you use Heroku as your development platform. And again, they're not for every use case, but when you need them, they're, they're pretty amazing. CI. Um, we have the ability for you to use our inbuilt CI, or you can BYO CI tools if you want. And you can see all of your test status in our UI, and it's super helpful. It's just, it's so fast to see how things are going when you use our CI tools. And the operational experience. This is actually a graph that shows you, um, like, all of the, you know, kind of, like, response request times for your application over time. Um, let me see if this, I can't remember. Yeah, response times is this particular graph. So we have features where you can go in and you can set your P95 or your P99 or your P100 at a certain kind of threshold. And the platform will actually automatically scale all of your dyno containers out to meet that target goal. So it's a great insurance policy if you're not actually sure what kind of traffic your application might get and you want to make sure you deliver certain kinds of performance targets for the business. Um, when we have people who really know when their traffic is going to happen or they want to manually scale it out, there's lots of ways to do that. You can do it with the API call. You can do it in the CLI. Um, you can do it with this handy little slider where you just uh, make a decision about how much compute you want to throw at things to keep your application performance really snappier to, to handle um, additional load. And you can do it also by choosing the kinds of dynos that you are running. So it could be a simple standard 1x dyno. It could be a px dyno. Um, they vary in terms of their uh, memory configuration. Um, and it's, it's a it's very powerful set of tools to really tune your application. So teams and collaboration. I mentioned that uh, my deploy to production permissions were removed some, some years ago, uh, right about the time that I started having to make presentations where you get a clicker, because once you do this, it's like you're, you're not really that trustworthy anymore um, on the engineering team side of things. Um, we have a really simple model for different roles you can assign people to. You could be a collaborator, or you could be an admin, or uh, you could have you know, deploy permissions. And for shops that are concerned with separation of duties or for making sure there's really bright lines between the things that different people on their teams can do, this is an incredibly valuable set of controls. Um, it's really quite simple to go in and pick up a user and change their permissions. Um, we've got an audit trails feature. We can go in and see what people have actually done. Those kinds of productivity and kind of oversight enhancement tools are another reason I think people really value um, using Heroku for certain kinds of application development. And when they get used to it, it just becomes easier and easier to birth new applications uh, in, this, in this way. Um, 
we 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 often make jokes about uh, you know we take everyone on a, on a particular application and we kind of bust them back to like the most minimum level of permissions and then see who comes crawling back asking for you know more advanced permissions than um, than they currently have and it's a really really wonderful compliance tool. What has happened over the past few years, I would say, is that uh, enterprise teams used to ask us for this, right? It was health and life sciences companies that had really big sets of developers who really needed these features. Now, I'll talk to a tiny development team, five, 15 people on this team, relatively early stage in the business, and they are just as savvy as the enterprises are now about the need for compliances, the need for controls, and the need for audit. It's amazing how sophisticated our industry has gotten in just the past few years. Okay, so uh, I'm gonna dive in and show you one of our customers. In this case, it's, it's a Toyota. Um, but I do wanna note that we see customers uh, trending in the following way. Some just use Heroku, some just use AWS, and some actually use the two of them together very, very successfully. And there are real strengths to all of these different kinds of patterns. So I'm gonna talk about AWS first, but I'm gonna talk about it fairly briefly because there's a very large show floor upstairs and you're theoretically all at this conference to hear how to do all of this better for yourselves. So um, I'm pretty sure that you will, you will all understand these benefits of working on AWS without any intervention or um, education from me. But in the case that you really feel that um, you, know, you want some of the benefits that Heroku offers, these are the benefits that we have seen from building applications ourselves on top of Heroku. As I mentioned, it is turtles all the way down. Um, our service component inventory to run Heroku in production is uh, about 300 services. Um, and the vast majority of them are built entirely on Heroku. Um, and, and that is exactly how we want to keep it. So really fast project spin up really good ephemeralization of environments, really easy to spin down. I understand what all of the services cost. I can clearly see all of their billing. I can clearly see who has admin access to everything and who does not. It's very, very simple to, to audit. Um, we have not talked a lot yet about uh, Salesforce integration, but another, um, I would say, overwhelming benefit of using Heroku for customer-centric app development is you get all of these kind of easy, out-of-the-box integrations with Salesforce data like Heroku Connect. So for those of you who are not familiar with that, it's a bi-directional data synchronization service that basically takes data from Salesforce products like Service Cloud or Sales Cloud and exposes it in a Postgres database so you can just write SQL against it and like everybody can write SQL in this room, right? Everyone in this room can write SQL, I figured. Um, and so it's very easy to do application development against that, whether you're you know, writing JavaScript or Java or Python, it doesn't really matter. Um, and, and just having this really kind of templated, prescriptive way to do things over and over again gives a lot of the teams we work with um, a lot of velocity. Um, I think the biggest deployment we have right now is a couple thousand developers um, running hundreds of production applications, and they run them all on Heroku. And every application that starts at this particular Fortune 500 company starts from a little push-button Heroku button that scaffolds out the application and supplies all of the necessary add-ons so that any developer knows that they're getting off to the right start in a company-approved way when they build an application um, uh, on, the, on our platform. And then, of course, there's the times you actually need them both together. Um, so this is a well-supported pattern, and I would say it's only getting more well-supported over time. 
You heard Wyeth and Janine talk earlier about some of the aspects of our partnership together as companies. There are a bunch of kind of specific product announcements that are coming out. Um, but I do see uh, a, quite a lot of customers mixing workloads. Um, I've got this particular AWS data service that I'm really fond of and I really want to use across multiple different applications. Um, even though my applications themselves are written in a variety of open source languages and all run on Heroku. They all need to hit a Redshift endpoint or something like that. So this is a well-supported and well-understood pattern. Um, and if you have questions about this one in particular after this session, you should feel free to come up and talk to me about it. Okay. So this is kind of a, a, a funny story because um, it looks really pretty now in the, like there's you know a case study and it is on the internet and it has all of the logos and it has all the pictures and it has all the diagrams. Um, but the interesting thing about Toyota Financial Services is that um, we first met them because uh, they, were, they were sort of suspicious of content on our marketing site. Toyota is a really big, con uh, a really big company really, really big company, has a lot of different divisions, a lot of different IT, a lot of different kind of business units. I'm sure many of you are in uh, you know, corporations like that, where the left hand and the right hand don't always know what the other is doing. And everyone might be making different decisions about which cloud platforms to use and how to use them. So you, you all tell me, if you are in a company that has a single uniform way to use AWS or any other set of cloud platforms today, are you from that company? Anyone? Single? Yeah, there's not a unicorn in here, okay? No one lives in that world. It's just not that clean. So bear that in mind while I, I tell you about uh, TFS. So the TFS team is, is actually a fairly sophisticated uh, development team. They do a lot with a little bit. Uh, they have a very clear philosophy around microservices development. Everything has to be totally indivisible as a service and have no dependencies, can be independently managed, scaled, deployed, and developed on. It's exactly, you know, it's SOA in 2018. So very sophisticated and very mature organization in that way. So they have this great philosophy for how to build applications. And the reason that they do it is it's because they want to get a lot more leverage out of the services that they build. So sometimes when they build an application, they actually need to build a new service. Other times they can reuse services they've already built and that have been tried and true, like in production at high scale before. So they're just trying to do better with reuse and um, scaling and being efficient with, with relatively lean resources. Um, and this is important because I see this everywhere I go. We already wrote uh, like an image transformation service and now we want to use it in three more applications. We already wrote um, you know, a, a, a thing that interacts with our CDN and gets the assets out where they need to be, just want to reuse that. So um, this is a way a lot of dev teams are getting more mileage out of few, fewer humans. So um, when Toyota builds a particular microservice, they really want to be able to have um, an isolated runtime, a dedicated data service. If the thing, everything needs an API, it may or may not need a UI. Like not every service needs to have you know, some kind of visual way to, to interact with it. Um, and it's got to have some kind of messaging fabric that they can tie it all together with. This is how they build all of their services, every single one. Like there's a dedicated Postgres database for every single one or whatever um, the pattern is that they are using. And they talk about it not in terms of two pizza teams, but in terms of sandwich sized teams. They want really, really small lean teams to be able to build and maintain these services. Really want to isolate dependencies. 
So interestingly about TFS, they also use a lot of Salesforce products. They've got sales, they've got service, they've got, um, you know, or actually maybe they don't have service. Maybe they only have, you know, five out of seven of the things that we sell. And that's because they didn't want to build the SaaS applications that Salesforce already has, you know, a great leadership position in. They just want to buy those SaaS products and use them in a turnkey way across all these different divisions. But when it comes to application development, they want to be able to access the data that those SaaS applications generate um, in order to do things like produce customer profiles or you know lease histories or things like that. So they needed a pass, a platform as a service um, uh, choice as well. And so they were br browsing around on the internet, trying to figure out, you know, are we using AWS, are we using GCP, are we using uh, Heroku, what are we going to use as our platform layer? And they saw this case study on our marketing site, Toyota runs, it was like, you know, headline, Twitter runs over 40 customer applications, you know, on Heroku, and they, they got very like, wait, who is that? Who is that? We're Toyota. Who's running all of these customer applications on Heroku? We never heard of Heroku. We don't know who these people are. Well, again, it turns out TFS in the U.S. is not the same as Toyota Motors Europe, and Toyota Motors Europe actually runs like, oh, you know, 40 of those applications, and then when you add uh, TFS and some of the other U.S. divisions, you actually start getting up to much higher numbers. Um, and I am positive this is happening to all of you with AWS in your own uh, organizations. There's like 19 different groups that are all using AWS and doing it um, uh, possibly in a different way. Um, hence the, the, that control tower announcement this morning, which was pretty good. Um, so the kicker for Toyota was really Heroku Connect. The reason that they liked Heroku as a platform, as a service, was that they could write applications that interacted with all of that Salesforce data really seamlessly, and they could do it in any language. So they have some teams that work well in Java, they have some teams that work well in Node, doesn't really matter when you use Heroku. So here's an example of the kind of business problem that um, development teams are trying to solve, where it's not just about containing IT costs, it's about creating new value for the business, it's about creating new digital experiences for customers. Um, Toyota has um, a lease return program whereby you know you turn your car in after the end of your three years or four years and then you get a bill that tells you know you have a ding in the left fender or whatever it is and you know it, that's gonna cost you a thousand bucks you don't get your deposit back or they send you a bill or whatever and the lag time between turning in your car and getting a bill for minor damage in that car was going into the weeks and the months and was producing some fairly unhappy customers along the way. Who wants to turn the car in and then get a bill three months later for like four grand and you don't even know if that's your ding or what happened? Um, so they decided to build an application where you could actually um, inspect your car yourself using your smartphone, taking pictures of it, and you could submit this lease return package via an app and get an immediate answer back as to what you owed on your lease. Um, this is enormous. This is exactly the kind of thing that you know, business and technology want to partner together to deliver on behalf of, of consumers and on behalf of you know, entities like TFS. It's exactly the way that we use new devices, new technologies, new capabilities to produce a whole new kind of, of digital experience. You don't have to go into the lot and talk to some shady guy and like try and pretend to you know, put lipstick in a dent or whatever it is. You just take pictures. The first thing you do is scan the VIN and the application has a little microservice that runs out and looks up the VIN on the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration you know, database and um, finds that UUID to confirm that it's the right car. Starts to create the inspection record on top of it. 
And then you go and you do a little walk around of your car, inside and out, and you take pictures of the condition of the car. And all of those photos get labeled using an AI service from Salesforce called Einstein that does image recognition. So, you know, I mean, it's a Toyota Camry. It's got a left rear quarter panel. Like, they all look pretty much the same unless there's a dent or something like that in it. And the, the, uh, the application will immediately give you an estimate of um, the damage that you might have done when you backed into a shopping cart and will um, help you assemble that lease return package in a way that's really immediate and satisfying. You could retake the picture if you think it didn't get, get it right, all that kind of stuff. And all of these packets are actually reviewed by an inspector, but um, you know, they can just do it with the digital assets um, that have been uh, prepared by the consumer. So the application architecture looks something like this. There's a different little microservice for each service, um, uh, each piece of functionality inside that application, whether it's finding the VIN, whether it's submitting um, the photos to uh, the, the AI for kind of image recognition and pattern matching, um, whether it's preparing an estimate of what that damage is in total because you know you really hit a lot of shopping carts or whatever it might be, and out the other end spits that estimate that improves that that customer's um, total experience. So, you know, this is not um, in some ways the best slide because we all want to value what we do very highly as you know engineering teams, as teams of builders, as teams of developers. But the fact is, Toyota can do 600,000 of these lease returns a year with an application that was built with relatively inexpensive human beings. Um, fresh out of college, not a lot of full stack experience, not a big team, doesn't take a lot to maintain it. After all, if there's a whole bunch of lease returns after Christmas because of the car sales, hey, the dinos will just scale up. I didn't need a DevOps team for that. So they actually won an innovation award from the company for delivering this particular app. And that's only one of the dozens that they have built on Heroku and continue to run today. So uh, just a couple of thoughts for the future here. Like, what's, what's next for Heroku? What are we thinking about? Harkening back to uh, Wyeth's uh, forward-looking statements at the beginning of this talk. Um, what are the trends that we see that are important and the ways that we hope to evolve our platform to make it more useful for developers over time? So microservices and serverless are both extremely important models um, for the future. Um, I will give you an example of a place where I wish our microservices story was stronger on Heroku, and it's this. You take an application like that one that TFS built, that lease return one, yeah, every service can be built um, independently, and it can be scaled independently and deployed independently, but it's actually really hard to group all of those services together and to push them all together to production. Like, it's five clicks, it's not one, you know, and there's not a good visual for how all these things relate. So these are the kinds of uh, improvements that we are working on today um, in terms of our product roadmap. And likewise, serverless. Um, there are some good ways to do kind of on-demand, you know, transformation and compute on Heroku. They're not as easy and fun as some of the other things that, that um, we've shipped uh, before. So this is an area where we're looking to make um, uh, improvements. And likewise, we see a lot of developers who are doing more and more complex things on our platform, and they need really prescriptive architectures to make sure that they do it right. And they do it in a kind of a scale-proof, future-proof way. So this is another area where we're investing right now. In terms of ML and examples from our customers, I have to tell you, image recognition on cars, which are like very standard objects, you know the year, you know the model, you, there's not a lot of deviation there, it's a, it's a factory-made thing. Um, that's a relatively easy th uh, thing to do ML on, and it's a relatively easy thing to train on. 
Um, most people are not data scientists by, by training or um, uh, by trade. And so ways to make it even easier for you, for you all to use um, those kind of sophisticated tools is uh, very much on our mind because we all want to you know, unlock the power of ML. But those of us who have actually experimented at length with things like image recognition and sentiment detection know that it's a lot of work. Um, and lastly, I would say the application development platform for Salesforce integrated apps. Salesforce is a little bit like AWS. It appears to be getting bigger all the time um, and have more and more SaaS applications and more and more customer-centric applications that our customers want to build, more and more digital experiences. Um, when I go up and I, I walk to the, uh, the grand shops in the Grand Canal or you know whatever all of these malls are that we keep going through to get to our sessions, I'm looking at all of these retailers and all these consumer brands, and I know which ones of those work on Heroku run on Heroku, and I know which ones of those actually use our service cloud or use our sales cloud or use our marketing cloud um, to send messages. And we see an increasing demand from those kinds of um, customers, whether it's you know LVMH or what have you, um, to run more and more customer-centric apps um, on Heroku, whether it's, it's retailing or clienteling or, or some other kind of special experience. Um, so these are all things that uh, we are thinking about in terms of the future of the Heroku platform. So uh, I believe I have done this in AWS style within a minute of uh, when they tell you to actually end your session so that people can ask questions. Um, I guess I would encourage all, um, you all, if you have questions, to feel free to ask them of Wyatt or Janine as well. Um, and if you guys want to just, I don't know if you can, you can stay there, and I don't know how questions get asked if people just pop up and ask them. Um, but to give you an example of something that we shipped fairly recently in support of um, our microservices kind of experience, we actually shipped a few things just earlier this fall before our big trade show, Dreamforce, um, which are things like um, internal routing of applications. So similar to what Janine was describing with PrivateLink, we now have ways for you to decide how different services can be networked together so you don't have to traverse the public internet. It's like you know, kids used to walk themselves to school, and now we drive them in cars all the way to the door, and then we watch them in. Like We've decided the internet is a public internet is a dangerous place, and so we're going to create some new ways for our services to talk to each other where they don't have to be exposed um, to what happens on, on the public internet uh, anymore. Um, likewise, you can create um, a VPN connection to, say, your on-prem data center. Uh, do not be, OK, how many of you still have some kind of on-prem or first-party data? Yeah. Okay. We're not going to talk about it a lot. We're just going to, uh, you know, make sure that we can uh, get to that AS400 in a closet securely if we need to, um, or otherwise kind of take advantage of those first-party um, data center assets. Most of us still have because we're still on our journey into the cloud. Um, so, questions from anyone uh, in the audience? Of course, we have a booth. Oh, wait. I want to go back a second. Maybe Terrence will help me with that if I don't get it. Oh, I thought there was one more side. Uh, we have a booth here. Um, we also have a lot of resources on the internet. So all of our documentation, all of our blogs, um, Trailhead, which is our kind of like developer learning portal, it's, it's more for, I would say, advanced Salesforce admins in some ways um, than it is for people who um, are doing uh, you know, ML or something like that. We have a wealth of resources that are available um, on the Heroku sites and on the Salesforce sites to help people become familiar with our products and the use cases and architectures we support. Um, but if any of you have any questions, feel free to ask them now, and I'll do my best to answer them if I can. I see a hand in the back. Uh, 
is Heroku Shield a product that companies can purchase right now? Um, it absolutely is a product uh, that, uh, that uh, companies can purchase right now. We have uh, shielded spaces, shielded dynos, we have shielded data services. Um, and you can, you can pretty much go to Heroku.com and you know, fill out the form for a sales human to call you. Um, or otherwise, you know, find your way into that that sales show. They're they're pretty. We're pretty good at that at Salesforce. So be careful. But uh, yeah, you can buy it right now. And I think actually everything I talked about is a GA product. Yeah. Yes, sir. Sure. So uh, the gentleman asked, um, Wyeth brought up earlier the ability to enter data um, into Salesforce using Alexa or voice um, of some kind. Wyeth, do you want to talk about that one? Sure. Happy to jump in. Um, so, um, you know, we tried to kind of think through some of the common use cases for, for Alexa. And when Alexa for, the Alexa for Business team is a great team, and we've spent a lot of time with them. And they envision kind of owning the conference room, so being able to go into a conference room and and you know, turn on the lights, turn on the projector, get the conference call started or whatever, but then also start to pull up like dashboards within Salesforce. So you, know, you could pull up your Q3 forecast and run your meeting all via talking you know, to your Alexa device in the conference room. Um, we've also talked about kind of decoupling from the actual Alexa device and just talking voice and how you could finish a meeting you know, as a sales rep and now capture all those notes. And you'll be able to do some of that through Einstein um, voice. Um, but then we have a, um, I talked to a, a big SI who's actually enabling for a, um, a hospital Alexa's in the rooms. And when someone has a, an issue in, in their hospital room, they can go and, and ask the Alexa for, for help from whoever is caring for them. And that creates a case and service cloud. And then, you know, someone comes and, and supports them. And so there's, you know, as we've gotten into it, we realized there's just so many use cases for it. It's really exciting. And what we're providing is the platform to go do that. So you can go and build your skills and you know, not have to worry about the security and authentication and all that. There's a Lightning Web component that does voice recognition. If you search for it, you will find Lightning Web component voice recognition, different ways to hook up source, uh, voice sources, data sources into create cases and append to records and things like that in Salesforce. Cool. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> Any other questions? No. Well, thank you all so much for um, bearing with us this afternoon. We hope to see you at the Venetian.